Robin Hansen is an economist at George Mason University and the author of The Age of M and the Elephant in the Brain, as well as the popular blog Overcoming Bias. This is Robin Hansen. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right. I'm here with Robin Hansen. Uh, thanks for joining me once again. Nice to see you again. Um, so I was looking at uh, your blog, Overcoming Bias, recently, uh, and I saw you uh, you put out uh, an article about uh, cryonics, um, which is uh, just last night. Yes, very interesting subject. Um, the idea of you know freezing your body with the hopes of sort of resurrecting you um, down the line when that's technologically feasible, um, and you you estimated the chance of being successfully brought back at something like five percent, uh, and you do have a methodology for that, but as part of it. Um, you estimated the the chance of civilizational collapse as being uh, low, or at least less than, I guess, fifty percent. Right. Um, right. How strong do you feel about that? With you know things like uh, nuclear weapons around and a lot of uh, almost accidents in, uh, in in that regard, and also climate change on the horizon. Uh, it, do you feel like uh, civilizational collapse or something? You know meaningfully catastrophic uh, is really that unlikely? Well, so, so the main thing would be what level were we talking about? Sure. So, uh, you know, in history, for example, civilizations rose and fall, uh, but they consistently rose again. So uh, you, you, if you're willing to, you know, suffer through a cycle like that and could still come out the other end, uh, then it's less of an issue. So for the purpose of cryonics, it's less about whether or not there's a cycle in civilization than whether the sort of bottom of the cycle would prevent you from being a cryonics patient. Now, um, you know, so, so for that, you know, the, the technology is just at the moment to just keep topping off tanks of liquid nitrogen. And, uh, and there's actually machines that make it. And so, it's a relatively low tech requirement. And if we were to develop plastination, which is a thing I talk about in the post, uh, which is a technology that's been proven in a lab, but hasn't been fielded commercially because of uh, such a small market, then, that, then it would be even easier. You would just you know, basically stick the old plastinated brain in a, in a hole in the ground and just wait. Uh, there wouldn't be any other supporting equipment required. And, and that would make it much easier to last through an extended downturn. So, um, you know, th that would be the issue in terms of, of civilization fall. Uh, I, I certainly think that, you know, the, the trend of civilizations rising and fall in the past is strong enough that one should expect some degree of civilization fall in the future. Uh, but the question is, is that just a slowdown and an absolute growth rate? Is it a decline? Is it a massive decline? Th those are the, you know, things you're uncertain about. Fair enough. I, I, I am uh, one of the things that was interesting about your post was how I didn't realize how few people w were actually willing to freeze their bodies after death. It seems like there's a large enough population of people who have the money who. Right. Uh, there, there's very little risk, I, I imagine, in doing something like this. So why not do it? As an economist, do you see any like weird incentive structure going on that's preventing people? Well, so I mentioned that in the ancient world, ancient Greece was really into mummification 
and they made millions of mummies. And the usual story back then was that mummification was going to preserve you to help you uh, live again in the future. Uh, most of the ancient world, of course, didn't do this, but the ancient world was fragmented across many different cultures, and this one culture did. So today, the world is vastly larger than it was in the ancient world. And if we were as culturally fragmented as they were, then you might have expected some place in the world to have a supporting culture, but the world is actually pretty culturally integrated. And so, I mean, that's something that suggests that if there's a civilization collapse, it'll be worldwide. Right. It won't be, it's just be in one region because we do have this world integrated culture. Um, and so, you know, that means it's somewhat of the shame that it happens that if the world culture finds this uh, distasteful or, or unappealing, then everybody doesn't do it. And even the few people who try to do it face strong conformity penalties, that they're penalized for being mm -hmm. nonconformist. And that's a big issue in this area. So you think people just aren't doing it as much because of these nonconformity penalties? Or, I, I mean, it seems like- Yes. Really? Literally. Okay. <laughs> so that, like I, I mentioned in the post, if you ask people, do you think sort of the payoff and the chance of success here you know, multiplied together are enough to justify the cost, you know, 10% of people say yes. But, you know, 10% of the world would be 700 million. And what we right. have so far is 3000. So that that's an enormous ratio of, of, you know, tiny, you know, half of a you know, one part in 2000 or something of people who would say they do it actually do it. And so that huge factor, I think, uh, has to be attributed to sort of the conformity penalties. That is, even though people in their head believe it would make sense, they know they would suffer very strong disapproval from people around them. Wow. And it's an important thing to realize about our world. We think of ourselves as embracing diversity and variety, and we think of ourselves as celebrating nonconformity. And we mostly do that on stuff we don't think matters. <laughs> so in your hairstyle, your clothes, the TV shows you like, the color decorations you have, on stuff we don't think matters, we are perfectly happy to embrace a wide range of, of styles and behavior. As soon as we think something really matters, we are all over, you know, slap, you know, sla slapping it down and, and crushing variety. We, we do not want to approve of stuff, variety and things we think matter. An interesting comparison here is that a similar number of people at a similar price pay to have their ashes thrown into space when they die. Hmm. And at, those don't make the news and their spouses don't divorce them because of that, because it's just quirky, you see. Right. It doesn't really reflect any more fundamental differences, but cryonics suggests that you really believe it would work and you'd really be willing to do it. And that suggests that you really are fundamentally weird in a much more important, deeper way that offends people. Are, are you, um, well, first off, I'm curious, are, do you plan on, on doing cryonics? I am a customer and have been for a while. Fair enough. Nice. Um, and, and also on this note of nonconformity, um, do you feel like there's, um, it, it seems like this is not very adaptive um, on, on some levels because uh the new, you know, innovative ideas that will power the next generation of the economy certainly are going to almost by definition have to be developed by non-conforming thinking, right? 
So why is this so integral to our minds? So if we think about adaptation, we're going to think in terms of genetic and cultural adaptation. Um, so in terms of genetics, uh, you know, most of our genetic evolution was, say, before 10,000 years ago, in a period when, say, the number of humans doubled every quarter million years. And so for any one person, sort of the rate of technological improvement was really low. So selection pressures on individuals to promote that sort of improvement was, was very small. Uh, you know, individuals a million years ago were not being selected for their being more innovative. Sure. Uh, so genetic and evolution clearly isn't favoring that. Now, in the last 10,000 years, you might see we've seen cultural evolution and cultures have won consistently when they had better military technologies. And so you, you would think that cultures would have then been selected for military innovation, that they would be open to uh, military innovation because the ones that were won the wars. Uh, but this doesn't really have much of a military color to it. Uh, whatever you know, intuitions we have tied to sort of respecting and being willing to consider military innovations, I don't think would trigger a respect for this. More the other way, uh, you know, we also had strong selection for sort of cultural uh, homogeneity and sort of bonding, like strong sense of cultural connection to each other. And that was often through sort of our moral norms and sense of what was right and wrong. And those were often like, we stuck together and we really defended each other militarily because we thought we were, we had the right norms and those neighboring people were evil because they had the wrong behaviors and norms. And that was also selected for militarily. So I think this is actually, unfortunately, pushing the triggers of, well, that's unnatural and that's weird. And that's just not the way God intended or whatever. That's the sort of reaction people are having. And that sort of reaction has been selected for culturally, unfortunately, to be against it. Yeah, I, I hear you. And I'm curious as someone who is like a nonconformist thinker there and speaking of these like norms that we sort of just have these vague, squishy feelings about that maybe uh, aren't as well justified, like upon closer examination, like things like, um, you know, when people broadly didn't support gay marriage and it was kind of just like, oh, well, I have this, you know, icky feeling about it. Um, yeah. but then we fast forward to today and I see people, um, you know, I've gotten into arguments with people who say, well, you know, what's wrong. There's nothing wrong with sex work or, you know, things like that. So like, why would you have a problem dating someone who's also on the side of prostitute? You know, after all, this is not a, um, you know, this is sort of just your squishy, icky feelings about these, uh, these topics that are getting in the way of, you know, clearly the, the rational, uh, position, which is to just, you know, brush it off or um, push aside these primitive feelings of jealousy, etc. Um, is there any place in our culture for just vague norms about, you know, this doesn't feel right, and therefore it isn't? I think the changes you've seen, and are trying to interpret as us being broader and more open minded, are better interpreted as a new religion is winning. Hmm. Um, that is, there's a new religious war and one side has been winning and these are the tenets of its religion. Uh, they aren't open-mindedness in general. They are a particular positions that they see as their side. 
and they see as the other side taking anti-positions. And so you're seeing one side winning. Sure. Um, okay, fair enough. Uh, elaborating on that point then, and when you're characterizing this as a, a religious uh, war, I, obviously these people are not uh, traditionally religious, but what, in, in what sense is it uh, religious then? Ideological, if you will. Sure. Uh, that is, uh, you know, in the ancient world, most alliances and wars were fought along ethnic and sort of affiliational grounds. And, you know, we made a switch to seeing most divisions and framing them in ideological terms. And so there's a new ideological faction uh, that is winning and it has some new dogmas right. and those dogmas are the ones that are winning. And that's not open-mindedness in this other than to that dogma relative to the others. Right, although this faction would uh, present itself or claim that it is being open-minded. Um, As do all dogmas, all sure. through, always. <laughs> It, except, it, although I will say, I've seen Hitler speeches where he says, my opponents accuse me of being intolerant. And I will say, we are intolerant. So, I, And you will hear that also from every dogma. That is, they yeah. will say, they are intolerant of the intolerance of the other dogmas, et cetera, sure. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair I mean, enough. Have you, I'm, I'm just curious, have you noticed this? Uh, the, obviously, we're talking about what is sometimes referred to as like the, the woke movement, whatever that means. Um, and maybe it would, it would be better to have like more solid definitions here, but it, it seems to be playing out largely on university campuses, or at least um, originating there. Um, and there's this famous debate between Chomsky and Foucault. Have you seen this? Uh, no. It's, it's it, basically this debate within the left that happened in the 70s. And Chomsky was, one of the questions was saying like, um, you know, like uh, Foucault was saying, well, we should be on the side of the proletariat, no matter what, because um, these are yeah. you know, the oppressed people. Chomsky's like, well, what if they're doing something wrong? And he's like, well, that doesn't, that doesn't happen. That's not, that doesn't arise. <laughs> um, but you, you kind of see what I'm saying, where it's, as you said, very ideologically fixed, and it seems to be an academic, um, seems to be fertilized in an academic setting. Well, I mean, certainly, one ideology that's had a lot of prominence in the last century has been sort of the ideology of the lower class. And then there are other ideologies that are just somewhat orthogonal to that. And the others have been winning. The, low, the yay lower class ideology has not been winning. In fact, it's sort of on the outs at the moment. Um, it's on the outs? Yes. I mean... So the, the most, the things that animate people most ideologically in terms of the winning side are things about sort of sexual orientation, gender identity, uh, race, and they are not actually primarily class-based orientations. And in fact, those are more prominent in the upper classes and they're okay with that. And they are okay with looking down on the lower class, you know, flyover country <laughs> that disagrees with them about their ideology. They, they are um, they, they have embraced, in that sense, being an upper-class ideology. Mm. Yeah, I, it, it's, I see what you're saying, but there is dispute within the upper class as well, right? I mean, there's certainly... Of course. The, 
right? But the point is the primary center of the ideal isn't class oriented at all. It, it happens to be correlated with class and then they're okay with that because that's not the center of their, their energies. Hmm. Um, well, I, I also wanted to ask you something you just mentioned earlier about the, the, our evolution, not really changing much within the past 10,000 years. Um, and it kind of brings me to a topic I wanted to get your thoughts on this sort of, um, the, the biohacking movement, um, these like do it yourself CRISPR kits that you can buy online. Um, you know, I've, I've heard about people who, um, they, you know, did some gene editing experiments on themselves. They had temporary night vision, you know, crazy things like that. Uh, do you see this, um, as being the future of something that could potentially, uh, alter, you know, human evolution, um, uh, modifier behaviors in ways that we might find more desirable? So, so the, the biggest change I can see potentially coming on a short enough time scale to matter is just some enough people en masse just deleting the mutations from their genome and especially from their children's genomes. Uh, the, you know, the genome is enormously complicated. It's very, really hard to say, to figure out in much detail which are the better genes, especially combinations of them but we have a lot of ways we can just identify the mutations, <laughs> the, the things that are rarer and probably not good. And uh, it seems that if you just systematically went through a whole genome and just deleted those, uh, that the resulting genome would be much higher quality. It would probably just be much higher IQ, much healthier, et cetera. And so uh, the question is when will that happen and how many people will do it? Um, and that's a convergence, right? That's a sense in which you know, people deleting the mutations would become more similar to each other. And that would create some sort of super class of people who were just much more capable. Now, the question is, how long will that take? Because of course it's a heavily regulated area and sort of in mass deleting all the mutations across the whole genome would be a pretty big change. And the question is, who, you know, who would be approved to do that? How much? And, you know, you might think you'd need some you know, pool of a thousand people to try it for a whole generation to be get to people to be approved to do more of it. And that's a very long, slow process. Uh, and so, you know, you might think that in a century, then we might have sort of a world scale of people doing this mass deleting the mutations thing. Uh, but of course, in a century, maybe other stuff will happen that make that somewhat obsolete. So, but it's plausible that, you know, within a century, we will just have you know, our descendants just in mass have deleted basically most of the mutations. <laughs> and that would be, you know, again, it, it could double our IQ, could double our lifespans. It could just be a really big improvement, but it would be a way in which we would be similar. So some people are thinking of sort of a fragmentation of genetic evolution. That is our descendants would become more different from each other. And on longer timescales, when you figured out more, that certainly is plausible. But the thing that would be most likely to happen first is just this mask deleting of mutations. And have you considered, uh, similarly to your book, uh, The Age of M, uh, what might be the economic implications of, of something like that? As you said, doubling IQ scores, things like that. Well, they're relatively mundane. So I don't think, I mean, it, it would make the world richer and more capable, but it wouldn't otherwise change the world dramatically. Uh, I think we would be able to pretty easily understand what a world of people who were, had fewer mutations would be. Um, now, I mean, it depends on how far you go in this way. Like, you know, if you, if you just 
you're going to have some threshold of how clearly something is a mutation that should be getting rid of. And there's going to be a whole range of intermediate cases where it's not so clear. So, you know, the simplest strategy is just to take, say, the 1% of cases where it's the most clear and then get rid of those and leave the other 99% alone, in which case, you know, the resulting creatures are, are different from each other in a similar way that we are. But you could imagine going farther and, and going farther down the line saying, no, well, it looks like, you know, 60% of people are this way and 40% of that way. And let's go with the 60% one, right? You could just go all the way through the genome and just pick the, the thing that had the highest chance of being the better one, uh, even if you weren't very confident. And then that choice is going to make everybody choose the same thing, right? You're going to have the, that, that would have this huge convergence where the whole world was basically picking the same genome. And now they all look the same, they all talk the same, they all have the same personality. And that would sort of be the next step, you see. Um, like the first step would just be to, again, take out the 1% of you know, clearest mutations. And that gets you know this huge population that's just much more capable, but similarly different. And then you might go farther to, uh, to, to converge in the sense of being more aggressive to take the versions that you know you had the best confidence were the best, but then everybody has the same one there. And then some people might want to say, well, okay, I want my kids to be pretty good, but I want them to have some part of me. <laughs> now the question is, well, okay, how about your hair color, your skin color, your, your height, you know, let's pick some things that maybe aren't very important. You can keep those. And there'd be some degree of sort of on the surface, keeping some surface differences just so that your kids felt like they were your kids. But um, overall, they're really going to be these generic things that are the same. That would be sort of the next second step. Yeah. And again, th that would happen, take even longer to be accepted and common. And well, so again, the question is like, what else happens? And you know, will the age of M come by then and make it all irrelevant? Yeah. Um, and, and as you're saying, you know, will this be accepted and common things like that? Um, it reminds me of a discussion I had with someone about the 3D printers and like printing guns and stuff like that, and how people wanted to, you know, you know, how can we regulate so that this doesn't happen? So that someone doesn't, you know, print a machine gun at their home. Um, right. And really you can't it doesn't seem like you can regulate it uh, in the same way you can't really regulate pirated movies i mean there are laws against it but people still do it uh if you have do-it-yourself crispr kits and they just get cheaper and more powerful it seems like people could do these things or, or pay to have them done clandestinely um if, if you're talking about taking your child's genome and going through an editing you know say say you know, your, your wife and yours egg and sperm and, sure. and combining it and then going through that genome and, and deleting the mutations. That's not a hobby amateur <laughs> thing to do in your basement. I'm sorry. Fair, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, you know, that sort of thing is going to be relatively easy to regulate. And as you know, medicine is highly regulated and people for a while were saying, well, China, they're not going to go along with this. They're going to be, you know, willing to do lots of genetic engineering. And then recently they basically said, no, no, we're going to follow all the rules. We're not going to do anything different here. If anybody here does something different, we're going to stomp on them because we, we're with everybody else on the wanting to be very careful about all this. So um, now, now I, I would think actually, you know, the biggest genetic or biological issue is falling fertility. Hmm. So uh, that so I most would want to ask how does anything else intersect with that, and I've 
tried to write on that. And, um, you know, the basic thing seems to be fertility is falling for a very generic, broad reason of common cultural pressures and shared cultural values. And so, and, and there is no obvious limit to how far fertility may fall. It's been falling very consistently for a long time and it doesn't stop at replacement fertility. It keeps falling. And the obvious solution in some sense would be some subculture that valued and promoted fertility and was very insular, i.e. resistant to outside influence. And say some religions might seem to be a candidate for that, perhaps Mormons or Orthodox Jews. Um, however, uh, it seems like those particular religions are not actually being insular enough. <laughs> Their fertility is falling pretty dramatically and they are, not, they are not that insular in terms of resisting outside influences. And so it's plausible that they are failing at becoming those high fertility insular exceptions. And so then the question is, will any, or, will any community really be able to do that for a long enough time? That is, you know, there are surely weird religions somewhere and some of them at the moment have high fertility, but they have to be able to sustain that high fertility through many, many doublings. <laughs> enough to become a substantial fraction of the world's population. And, you know, genetic engineering might somehow intersect with that, but that to me would be the most interesting question. That is all the rest of the genetic engineering is somewhat irrelevant if fertility stays really low. Hmm. You just uh, don't have more kids. Cu couple questions there. So when you said insular and the reason you want to keep them that way, is, is that because uh, if they are not insular, they'll be exposed to these uh, outer cultural values, etc. Yes, right, exactly. So, so to, even today, say Mormons or other highly religious people, they, they can still they still have a lot of children, but most of their kids don't stay in the religion hmm. and and maintain those values. And so, you need to have a subgroup that has high fertility and keeps a large fraction of their children in their community. You know, maintaining that those tendencies, and that's what hasn't been happening. And also. Um, why is uh, fertility so important, especially when it seems like the, the billion plus population size is pretty anomalous uh, over human history? Well, obviously we've had a long-term growth, but uh, a lot of the growth we've had in terms of you know, per person wealth and income has been because of scale effects, because a larger world can be more efficient and innovate and do more things. So as the world gets smaller, <laughs> we lose a lot of those scale economies. And of course, you know, the question is, you know, the long-term trend there is terrible in the sense that if you say have the population every two generations, then, you know, in 500 years, we're all gone, <laughs> right? Uh, so uh, at some point there'd have to be a deviation from that. Some subset would eventually have to break out of that. And the question is, this, how far down could our civilization collapse before that happens? So we were talking about civilizational collapse, and this is a plausible mechanism over a longer run. If, if there's just hardly any people left, uh, then there's just much less scope for a world economy of the sort we know today. And, um, you know, all sorts of things can go wrong. That's fascinating, the idea, because certainly there are parts of the world where um, birth rates continue to go up. Um, no, no, there are no, there are no such places. Really? Places it, like Nigeria and things no, like that? No, no, you look at, look at those places and look at the fertility and they have all been declining. 
And they're pretty much all on the same trajectory that most of the world has been on for a while mm. of fertility declining with wealth. And so the world is on a declining fertility trend and we just don't see much in the way of exceptions. Interesting. Um, that, that's, well, that, I didn't know that. I, I, I assume that in certain places of the world, like uh, developing or undeveloped nations that uh, they were still no. pumping out babies. <laughs> I mean, they have higher fertility than we do, but it's been declining and, uh, and roughly on the same curve. I mean, there's places you can go to look up graphs where you can see the graph of fertility versus income versus year. <laughs> And see I, I, that fertility yeah. as a function of income, you know, has a re steady relationship and it's even been getting worse with time. I see. But there's, um, I, I guess what I should have said, they're still higher than replacement in, in certain parts of the. Right. But those are the poorest places that are, right. their fertility is rapidly falling as they get richer. I see. And, and there's no world in which this can be a, a positive thing or that it might uh, level out at some point in the same way that uh, increasing fertilities so, have leveled out? So, so for decades, the UN has been making projections about the future demography, i.e. population, age distribution, et cetera, based on seeing fertility trends. And what they've always done is assume that as soon as fertility hits replacement 2.0, you know, children per parents, that it stops. And that's been consistently what they've done in their forecasts. And they've just been consistently wrong. It just does not stop at 2.0. Those cultural trends that reduce fertility just keep pushing. Mm. And so, you know, obviously, you know, we're looking at an issue that will take several centuries to play out, mm. but it's been playing out so far for several centuries. So if the trend has been this consistent for several centuries so far, I don't think you can be too blasé about thinking it it's, isn't going to continue for another few centuries. And so the question is like, what could break us out of that? And in some sense, you know, the key solution is some sort of cultural variety, like some way in which some parts of the world have different cultures and, and styles and religions, et cetera, and they do things different. And so one of the key features to notice about the world in the last half century is how much cultural convergence we've had. People sort of have worried and imagined a world government. And, you know, because of those fears, people have been made been careful not to introduce an explicit world government with very strong powers, but we have a world mob that is in a wide range of policy areas. There's just a community around the world that talks a lot and has status and agrees with each other basically. And that's why in a lot of policy area, there's almost no variation around the world in areas like nuclear power or electromagnetic spectrum or medical experiments. Uh, just in a lot of different, even, you know, car regulations, just in a lot of different areas, the world is basically all on the same page uh, about how to do things. And we have a pretty integrated culture into people watching movies and listening to music from all around the world. And so we just don't have that much in the way of local cultural variation that could support a sort of insular high fertility local area. It, yeah, this is something that uh, a guy like Wade Davis talks about, whereas uh, we've become more globalized culture, the amount of uh, unique languages and language obviously being a huge, uh, you know, marker of culture and, and you know, it, uh, for, it, you know, the way you speak is a sign of the way you think, and that's going to communicate right. your values, etc. Um, but all those things are dwindling, like the number of 
languages right. is, you know, there's an extinction crisis really among languages. Do you see, in, in some ways, it seems like um, the, uh, the the cure is the poison here on some level where we're talking about falling, um, you know, birth rates, some part of the reason being a lack of cultural variety. Right. And I mean, you, the important thing here to, is to see that this trend is the culmination of a lot of very deeply held hopes and ambitions. <laughs> this isn't just an accidental trend. Right. A lot of people for a long time have wanted deeply and sought and, and worked for the world that we are entering, where, again, we have a world culture and we have less world war and an integration of world elites and around the world that share priorities about, say, global warming and taxing capitalists and um, regulating medical experiments. And like, they really are proud that sort of their ethical sense has, has won out and they are all in agreement about what the good things to do are and that they will therefore be able to coordinate on global scales more in the future to deal with big global problems. And part of their values are that, you know, the previous cultural pressures that induced people to have more kids and women to stay home and be mothers have been reduced and people feel more celebrated and willing and able to have careers and not be mothers. And we've gotten so successful at that, that that's a big part of the lack of fertility. Mm. And so they will be resistant to local deviations that go counter to those trends they've been working hard for and have been eagerly seeking. And this is clearly, as you were saying before, this is an upper class ideology. Well, the world is more integrated at upper classes than at lower classes. And in some sense, um, you know, the winning, the, the new world winning ideology is one most among these sort of global elites, the, the ones who are well-educated and travel and, and talk a lot across boundaries. And in some sense, you know, the other side of that group is all these diverse local groups who have more local allegiances and practices and but they don't coordinate together. They don't form much of a global alliance. They are just in each little area doing things their different way. So for example, regulations of workplaces are pretty uniform around the world. Just in some fraction of the world, half the employment is off the books, right? Yeah. Black market. So, uh, but the official jobs are done the way all the official jobs worldwide are done. It's just the unofficial jobs are done different and they're unofficial. But you can see that you know the trend would be to make more and more of the economy on the books, following the official rules, which are pretty similar around the world. And I'm curious, like in uh, in your book *Elephant of the Brain*, you talk about how a lot of um, our values and our behaviors and things like that are, are basically just forms of social signaling to each other that um, you know, hey, I'm I'm really a good person. Is that kind of what's going on here with? Um, these ideas of, uh, you know, integrating across cultural boundaries, even though the locals and lower class peoples in those uh, countries are not necessarily uh, a part of that? Uh, so the idea of signaling is that you have some characteristic and then you show it to people and then they come to believe that you have that characteristic. And so in the simplest case, you can show it to people because it's really there. <laughs> 
it's not fooling them into something. It's, it's making them. So for example, if you're smart and you signal that you're smart, you show off that you're smart and you convince people you're smart because you're smart. <laughs> it's not that you aren't smart. It's that you might pretend you don't care what they think, but you really do. And you are putting a lot of effort into convincing them. And so people do have the values they have, and they do have a culture that they value. And they want to show that they are have an allegiance to it and are devoted to it and, and are good people with respect to those values. Uh, but, you know, it's more who is their culture? Who are their people? And that's the thing that's changed rather than having these different, you know, fragmented world cultures, each of which, you know, people were trying to show allegiance to their local culture. We've created this global culture. Um, I, I guess what I was getting to earlier is, isn't this idea of um, globalizing where it, as it seems like part of the reason for this trend of declining fertility, um, it almost, almost as though uh, globalization is sort of destroying itself. Is that a fair assessment? Well, so, you know, if everybody has to have a low fertility, then in some sense, you know, one part of that world isn't losing compared to the other part of the world. If some part of the world was able to become an exception and have high fertility, then they would win out against the low fertility part of the world. But if a culture looks out for deviants that might win by an exception and make sure to punish them enough, then they repress those deviations, right? It's just like you might say burglary, right? Well, burglary were easy. I could, instead of working, go steal stuff and, and win out on the sort of economic competition that way. And so we make sure to punish people for burglary, right? To make sure that they don't win by burglary. And similarly in a world where you realize that you're having low fertility and everybody's having low fertility and you saw some subgroup with a high fertility, you might talk about, well, what's gonna happen if we let them keep doing that? And that's not a problem. And, and then like, if you squash them, then that's not a problem. So the global culture isn't losing, at least in the short run, if they manage to repress um, deviance, but there is this long-term issue of what happens if the population just keeps falling and falling into the indefinite future. Yeah. Um, another question about signaling. Um, since you, you wrote this and you, you've written a lot of, you know, things on this topic, but you wrote an entire book about, you know, how uh, signaling motivates our behavior, et cetera. Um, do, do you ever find yourself becoming more like self-conscious about these things where in your mind you, you do something and then you realize, oh, am I just signaling right now? And I mean, can't that be kind of paralyzing? I mean, it's a combination of both outcomes and it's just a matter of the mixture. So on the one hand, the simplest approach is that I look at what other people do and try to explain what they do in terms of our available theories and, and don't have to look at what I do much at all. <laughs> yeah. I don't need to necessarily make my behavior or views, you know, perception of my life consistent with these overall theories. I can just focus on the world and how to explain the world. Now, of course, I do somewhat notice that these theories about other people and the world do apply to me. And so I do somewhat notice those applications and they do affect me to some degree, but to a limited degree because I'm not actually reflecting on most of what I do. I'm not explicitly conscious of most of what I do. So these sort of observations have a limited effect on me. So, so for example, I know that we all sort of go to the doctor in order to show that we care about each other. And so if I'm sick or someone in my family is sick, 
I can have the immediate reaction, oh, let's get them to a doctor. And then I can think, yeah, but that's mostly to show that we care. So then I could think, oh, well, it's not really as much of a crisis as I thought because mostly medicine doesn't actually help that much. But yeah, let's make sure that we show that they care. So, okay, let's do it. But I'm a little not quite as stressed about it. Yeah. Similarly for education, I might say, well, look, in order to be successful in our society, you need to have degrees. Everybody wants to look at a degree and make sure you have one. Uh, we don't actually learn that much at school. So for my kids or myself, I would say, don't stress too much about whether you're learning stuff. You're not actually supposed to be learning stuff. You won't remember the stuff you learn anyway, but yeah, I guess you need to get degrees. Yeah. So um, that means my behavior isn't deviate that much necessarily for other people's behavior is, but I might better have it reflect what I understand about the actual functions of the behavior. Well, when it comes to education, I, I think there's a very intuitive story for why, um, what you just said is true. I, I mean, I think people can learn all kinds of things online. I think people can breeze through college and, and not learn anything and just pass their classes. Um, when it comes to healthcare, it's still, even if the data says that you're correct, it seems like our minds kind of understand life through narratives. And I, I wish that there was a better story for why what you're saying is true because in my mind there are people who fly halfway around the world to get you know the best care or some cutting edge treatment that uh you know sometimes does help right so i mean stand back from a distance and look farther from your at yourself and your associates from a distance yeah from a distance i can say uh you know medicine's been around for thousands of years through almost all times and places people hardly spent very much on medicine. Maybe 1% less of their budget they spent on medicine. Most of the world today doesn't spend remotely as much as on medicine as the United States. And most of the world today doesn't hold medicine to be as sacred as the US. I think in the US today, we're at a historical peak of respect for and effort spent on medicine. So yeah. that means we're weird here and you have to see that and start to see it from somebody else's perspective. And I think part of the story is a lot of the ways the U.S. is weird is because we have a story about why we are the greatest and everybody should be grateful to us. And we have a story like that about medicine. We say every, medicine was terrible and everybody was dying until modern medicine was invented by us here in the U.S. And we've been inventing and giving out modern medicine to the world for 70 years and the world should be grateful to this great gift we've been giving them of modern medicine and continue to give them. And this makes us feel really good. And therefore it's a reason we hold it sacred. We similarly do this for military. We have the largest military in the budget by world. We spend more in our military than the entire rest of the world spends together. And partly that's to reaffirm our story that we saved the world from the Nazis and the communists. The world should be very grateful to us for that, that spending. And therefore we actually do put high value on our military and we put a big budget into it and we respect and celebrate our military people. And it's a similar sort of thing. We, we sort of are praising ourselves and telling ourselves that the world should praise us and be grateful to us because this thing is wonderful. And so part of that is to have to believe this thing is wonderful which we do, but of course the data actually does consistently say it's not actually making that much of a difference. Hmm. And 
when, you know, obviously we do spend a lot of money on healthcare in the United States, but a counter argument that people will give is, you know, a lot of that money goes to administrative costs uh, relative to other uh, like Western democracies like Germany, for example. It's not that much. Uh, it, it's still, that's not where most of the money in medicine is going. Most not of it isn't even good. going for drugs. It's mostly going to pay, you know, the actual services that you're, you're getting. Um, I mean, we do have higher prices because we have, you know, regulations that limit who can be a doctor. And so, you know, without those regulations, we would have more cheaper doctors. Yeah. Uh, but still, um, you know, we are spending a lot of medicine mainly to have the best care, which is basically we defer to doctors to decide what's the best. And if they tell us this is the best and it's expensive, then we believe them and, and we get it. And the point is, you know, if you actually look at the data, it's not actually very much more helpful than the less best stuff on average. I think one way to, to realize is many people have this sort of simple model that medicine is either ineffective or helpful. They just find it hard to get their hand, head around the category of harmful medicine. And the point is there's a lot of harmful medicine. Yeah. You, even if you can get your head around imagining concrete cases where somebody was benefited, and there are many such cases like that, you have to remember there's a similar number of other cases where people are actually hurt. And that's the reason why on the margin, more isn't better because on the margin, you're adding as many helpful as hurtful cases. Certainly modern medicine helped reduce things like infant mortality, where, um, you know, people uh, wouldn't even wash their hands when giving birth, you know, crazy things like that. Um, do you think part of the reason that the amount of spending um, isn't, you know, spending more isn't more helpful is maybe there's diminishing returns where, uh, you know, you go to any given doctor and they all basically have gone to medical, well, they all have gone to medical school and they've basically learned the same kinds of things. You, you know, they still don't wash their hands. There, there's no, <laughs> I, I'm sorry. It's, it's, yes, it's, it's a well-known thing that washing hands helps, but that doesn't mean they're doing it. Sure. Uh, this is a oh fair enough yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay um, there's still a large problem with doctors and other medical personnel not washing their hands yes although much less than in say the 1500s right uh, I would think so again the, the key thing is to look on average versus March and that's the distinction so when I say medicine isn't effective I'm talking about the data about on the margin. Okay. So we have a very large margin because we have a lot of medical care and spending. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we spend, you know, 17% of the economy in the U.S. on medicine. <laughs> and so that's an awful lot of spending. And so we're doing a lot of things. And so even if you can think of particular cases that are useful and helpful, you're imagining a small fraction of all the stuff that's happening. What about um, in this case, because obviously, you know, you said uh, medicine has reached a historical peak of being, you know, beloved and respected, um, having to do with, say, the vaccine. Um, and in the U.S., there's still like a contingency of people who are not uh, taking it. Um, do you see any way of incentivizing people to do this? Um, do you think, you know, why have the incentives so far 
uh, not been successful? Uh, well, I mean, we've always had a large fraction, a large rate of not doing what doctors tell you. That's just always been a feature of medicine. Um, of course, doctors know about this and they lament it, but uh, there's just a large rate of non-compliance and always has been in medicine. Uh, so if you're trying to get 100% compliance, that's just vastly more than trying to get 50% compliance yeah. uh, because you can certainly get half the people to do what you say, but more is much harder. Uh, obviously, another thing that's going on is that we've had increasing political polarization over the last decade or two. And this, I think, is one of the most dramatic examples of people taking a stand uh, to express their polarized political attitudes. Um, you know, you might have, and we often do think that people are willing to sort of be political when it's cheap yeah. and not costing them very much. And that as soon as things start to get substantially expensive, they cave because, you know, it's important to do, you know, what really works. And so the fraction of people who are willing to not do vaccines in order to express a political opinion here, even when there are substantial health costs, is a reflection of the degree of political polarization and the degree of devotion people have to expressing that political loyalty. That says this polarization thing has not peaked. It's getting worse and you should expect more of the same. Do you see any way to get people to just calm down in, in, in the country? Because, I mean, I see people on left and right talking about, you know, like we're on the brink of civil war, which seems a crazy proposition to me. Um, and certainly well, clearly you know, we're, we're not on the brink of civil war. Right. But yeah. Yes. We are moving in that direction. It could still be a long path between here and there, but we are moving in that direction in the sense that polarization is increased. People are feeling more personally mad about it and they're willing, less willing to compromise and more willing to punish the other side. And that's increasing and it doesn't look like it's going to peak soon. It's going to get worse. Yes. Although it, it seems like a, a lot of this is kind of just a mirage, at least people's feelings about it. I mean, with something like an issue like slavery, it's like, okay, here's a substantive issue that we just can't agree on. And half the country feels one way and half the country feels another way. Like, yes, the country split Democrat and Republican, you know, Trump and anti-Trump, I guess, but the guy's going to die and we're going to have to move on to newer issues. And I'm, I, it just seems like there's a lot of panic and I don't think people's reasoning powers get better when you, they're panicking. But you have to remember why Trump initially won. Yeah. So basically there was a part of the country that felt their views were being neglected and not represented. And no politician was willing to stand up and represent them. And then Trump did. That's basically all Trump did to win was to credibly communicate to some group that I am representing you. And one of his main ways to do that is to piss off the other side, yeah. <laughs> to say, I'm willing to do things that make them mad at me and make them disgusted at me exactly to show you that I'm on your side. And they bought that. That is, okay, finally someone was on my side and willing to represent my position and, and views. And that's how Trump got there in the first place. That was his main appeal. He didn't have much else going for him. And in fact, he had a lot of negatives. 
So it's not that somehow this polarization goes away after Trump goes away. I mean, Trump appeared exactly because the polarization made a spot for him. Right. And I don't think the polarization will go away after him, but I guess I just don't see a clear path towards civil war, whereas people in, you know, throughout the 1800s have been threatening secession. And that was a clear path where, you know, if, if a, a conglomerate states just leaves the country and the rest of the country wants them in, okay, well then you're gonna have to take up arms. The, now though, I just, I, I, we're not close to civil war, right? You, you have to realize just how much worse it could get before we were at that point. Yeah. Clearly, I mean, we're in a rich, comfortable, prosperous society, right? We are not the sort of people who feel very inclined to start any sort of war. And in fact, people have worried that if, say, China or Russia initiated some war elsewhere, we would just not be motivated enough to do much because we're just not in the mood. Right. So that's the world we are, is people who feel pretty comfortable and do not really want to do big things. But then that which means it'll take a, quite a bit before we were willing to actually initiate a civil war. And we're nowhere near that now, but the point is we are in a position of pretty strong political polarization and there are, it can get a lot worse. And that's the reason why it can get a lot worse, right? If we were almost at the threat, the threshold of civil war, well then as soon as we got a little worse, we'd have the war and then it would be over, right? But because we're so far from a war, that means that's why this can get so, so much worse. Yes, I guess my, my follow-up to that would be is there is there not a leap that's being taken there when uh, we say, hey, people are polarized? And then the follow-up is, you know, we're on a path towards civil war. I mean, those two things don't necessarily have to be true at the same time, right? We are at a peak of polarization in the worldwide over the last half century or so. Yeah. Okay, so the U.S. is not only at a peak of spending on the military, spending on medicine, we are at a peak of political polarization. That is, most of the rest of the world internally is not anywhere nearly as polarized as we are. Yeah. And in some sense, like, there's a lot of places that have civil wars where the people aren't as polarized <laughs> because, yes. you know, they don't necessarily have to be so polarized for some group to start a civil war somewhere. Right. You just need some area where some people, enough people are disaffected enough to say pick up arms, but then those have to be people who don't have many other good options and where, you know, the, the central military isn't that competent, et cetera. And then they might start a civil war. Right. So we're not in the situation, but I, I, I am seeing sort of, I mean, I, I tweeted somebody's op-ed a few days ago where they were saying that this sort of disruption will peak two years from now. And this is why they thought the Russians or the Chinese might attack now because they yeah. realize this is their best opportunity. And then my reaction is two years from now, who says it's going to peak two years from now? Yeah. So I hear about a lot of moves in a lot of important areas of society where basically the the, the winning side is entrenching themselves and sort of using their power more directly to sort of push for their uh, their people and their agenda. And so I'm hearing this within finance. I'm hearing this within academia uh, and charity and some other areas. And so I see a substantial increase over the last, say, two years in sort of how activists uh, people are being, sort of how sort of 
you know, pushing for loyalty and, and checking for loyalty, people are within these areas. And so it looks like, you know, this is on the increase. And this doesn't look like something that's going to peak in two years at all to me. Yeah. Um, and, and I know we're, we're almost out of time here, but one of the things on that point that part of the reason why I said it feels more like a mirage is like those people you mentioned who felt disenfranchised, a lot of them are living in states that have relatively low populations, but they still have two senators in the Senate. And so in that sense, they're overrepresented in government. And the issue of feeling like, oh, my views aren't represented um, right. No, I, I think it's represented in culture and in the and sort of the high ground of society as opposed to sort of in the Senate. I think that is that is true. So that is, if you look at sort of the major media outlets, legal institutions, academic institutions, finance institutions, publishing. Uh, if you look at those industries, those industries at the tops are now dominated by the other side, and they see that and they know that, and that bugs them. I see. And the Senate is one of the few places where they have enough voice to, to express their frustration and, and act on it. And in, say, presidential elections through the Electoral College, right? They're basically losing most everywhere else and right. noticing it. And they are, you know, obviously very concerned about that and willing to take someone like Trump as their standard bearer knowing all of his faults because they're feeling so desperate for some sort of reaction. I, I know it's just so strange that both sides feel almost the exact same way and they both have very good cases for their, you know, their feelings being legitimate. Like the Senate and the presidency, these are not marginal institutions. These are, if you have control of that, you, you can pretty well direct the country. Um, well, it extent. turns out like government, not so much. That is, Trump was actually not very able to change government to follow his policy recommendations. I mean, you know, especially dramatic that, you know, one of the things he did most was to try to push for pandemic, you know, uh, vaccine development. And he had some unusual pushes. And uh, the CDC, the major government agency who's responsible for seeing that basically hid the information about the success of his vaccines that was his major policy triumph yeah. of his presidency from candidates in the election, from the public in the election, made sure to reveal it the few days after the election. And they, they went out of their way to change the rules to make sure that the information about his vaccine success was failed to be told to the voters at the election time. That's a pretty dramatic thing that the president can fail to control a major agency of the federal government who then basically, you know, said, fuck you yeah. to the president in a big dramatic way. Right. So yeah. the high parts of most government agencies are not under the control of the Senate or the president. Fair enough. Um, and I think that that seems to be, True. I've, I've, I remember hearing uh, Bill Clinton saying something about that with the uh, intelligence agencies that, you know, who are these guys working for? You know, who, you know, I, I'm supposed to be the president. Right. Um, okay. Well, uh, last thing I'll ask it's you. Been, is, uh, oh, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> that last thing I'll, I guess I'll ask, and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe this is too 
broad of a question to end on, but is there a path back from this? Do you, do you see any way to step down the uh, de-escalate? So my overall attitude is to try to look at the largest scales of things in space and time. And I see lots of other people get really obsessed with short-term local trends and they've got that covered. So why should I? Uh, and so um, I'm more trying to notice the longer term trends and maybe sort of notice intersections between short term and longer term trends. And that's what I find more interesting. So related here is we do see this longer term trend toward a unified world culture, especially among elites. And it has a side and, you know, it's on the anti-Trump side yeah. in the U.S. So that side looks to me like it's going to continue to win worldwide and in the U.S. And it will become sort of a dominant ruling class. Uh, there's no particular guarantee that, you know, it has to lose and be 50-50. Um, so for example, at the town scale, at the city scale, in most ancient societies, there was not a 50-50 division of two equal political sides. Yeah. There's just one side that wins and, and dominates. That's how it is in most cities, most states even, most towns, most firms, most ancient empires. Politics was one winning side. <laughs> and so that can happen in our world too. And so that's my best guess over the coming years is one side's going to win and the side that's winning now will probably be the winning side. <laughs> and when they win and remember their resentment against the losers resisting them, they might not be kind right. and gracious. Uh, they may well be scouring for traitors. Um, God damn. Well, <laughs> on that that's, so that's a longer term thing that, that, that would be kind of my best guess. And in fact, I think we are at risk of sort of this world culture becoming so solid and strong, we have sort of essence, a world government and the world government sort of locks itself in and sort of that's how we, this world goes for the next centuries. It's yeah. a strong world government with a dominant elite culture, which then I worry will be rotting. <laughs> I oh, worry about the consequences of that for the long-term future of humanity. And so that's less about the US and current politics. That's about this long-term trend. Well, uh, Robin, on that hopeful note, <laughs> let's, no, I, gotta, I love it. Got to call it like I see it. Sorry. <laughs> yes. No, I appreciate it. Um, overcoming bias, um, age of M, elephant in the brain, anything else where uh, people can find you? Grabbyaliens.com. That was my thing in the last year. Uh, uh, can you say that again? Grabbyaliens.com. There we go. All right, Robin, thank you very much for your time. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you to Robin Hansen, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gamey. See you next time.